everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is our second rest day episode. First real rest day. That that first one doesn't count. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, do you want to say a sentence about the podcast? You gave it to me to read last week, and I've not put it in front of me. <laughs> do you, if you have that on hand, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Choose the Hard Way is a podcast where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people. And I have guests from a really broad variety of disciplines, tech, business, the arts, military, all kinds of different areas. And they share their amazing and inspiring stories. So if you're into doing hard things and what that builds in uh, your life, please come check the podcast out. We're on all platforms and you can find it at choosethehardway.com. It's a great podcast. Highly recommend listening to it. I'm on an episode. I assume if you're listening to this, you're mildly interested in one or both of us. So that could be a good place to start. We're talking about where the Tour de France stands after nine stages, where it's going, and really whatever whatever else just comes up. We've got a few kind of off-the-beaten-path topics we were just warming up on before we recorded. Um, the GCs, like Jonas Vindegaard, is within 39 seconds of race leader Tadej Pogacar. And I've been surprised a lot of people have been a little negative about this GC saying like it's over, like Tade's got this. You know, there is 10 riders within two, almost within two minutes of the lead. And when you compare it to last year, it was like, I think 10th place was 733 down. You know, I, I think this thing is somewhat wide open. Clearly, we saw yesterday that Pagachar and Vinegard are the two strongest riders. Everyone else looked pinned on that final climb and then couldn't sprint and they got a four second gap on on the others andrew like what's your big picture takeaway so far after nine stages everything's it seems inevitable until it isn't that's my big takeaway pagachar looking incredibly strong i'm also feeling like if you could combine the three enios riders in the top 10 right now which is yates pidcock and thomas of course up there and third slot if you could just add them together and make them one person then Enios would have a really strong chance of running, winning this race. At the same time, I, you know, they might. If we take a look at what's happening with COVID in France right now, which I know we're going to talk about at some point in this podcast, take a look at the stats, take a look at what's happening inside of the race, some of the protocols or lack of protocols. Who knows what's really going on? You never know what's going to happen in this race, Spencer. How are you feeling? Do you feel like Pagachar has this sewn up or is he more uh tubes and clinchers he's definitely <laughs> oh man i miss the sew ups he definitely is the strongest rider he looks fresh I, the, my top note is he reminds me of primos roglic in 2020 like do you remember when primos was dancing away and we're like wow this guy's so strong he's such a good sprinter and i'm just looking going to the first rest day in, in 2020 primos roglic had 21 seconds on second place Tade Pogacar is 44 seconds back. You know, it's almost a mirror image if you sub in Vindegaard for the 2020 version of Pogacar and Pogacar for Roglic. He's, he's looked great. The problem is this isn't a 10-day race. Like, this is a three-week race. He's been really aggressive, like shockingly aggressive. I cannot believe how well he's been in the sprint. I also cannot believe how much his team is working to put him in position to win stages. I kind of thought they even tried to do that yesterday, which should have been a day that they sat back and let Rico Boats or Iran take yellow. I still don't understand why they didn't do that. So, I mean, my 
Long story short, he's definitely the strongest rider. I've been shocked at how aggressive he's been, he's been racing and, you know, without any massive returns. It's, it's like a bad, it's a bad duo in, in Grand Tour racing. If you're going to be really aggressive, you want to take big time like he did last year. If you're going to be really aggressive and not take a ton of time, I mean, we can just go back and see how that turned out for Primos. You know, he fell apart eventually at the end of that race because he was so exhausted. Same thing with Simon Yates in 2018 in the Giro. Primo's or Tade's ride reminds me a lot of that, where they were just super aggressive. If you remember that race, they were like drilling back every breakaway, sprinting for every time bonus, and then Simon just fell apart in the third week of that race. And as you say, it's it's like not inevitable until it happens. And we thought Simon had that race sealed up until he didn't. So I think he's good. I mean, he's he's fantastic. Like I, I'm in awe of his talents. I'm a little curious and concerned about why he's been so aggressive and i'm not completely blown away by the gaps he has over everybody um, i think it's good for Ineos. they lost danny martinez in the gc yesterday they had four guys in the top 10 that's half the team that's too many guys in the top 10 like you can't have 50 percent of your team be riding for gc uh, martinez i thought he would be better than he you know at one point i thought he was maybe the strongest rider on that team um, like in a GC sense that he, you know, he was so good at the Giro last year. I was a little disappointed he didn't come into this in better condition. But now that he's out, Pickock, I imagine, I don't really, still don't really know what Tom Pickock is doing here. You'd think he would be here for stage wins, but he's sitting seventh overall and not riding for stage wins to preserve his GC position. Maybe he's just trying to get a top 10 and ride for experience. Um, you know, if he falls out, we, of the GC and they just have Thomas and Yates. I think that's actually like the better position for them to be in. Or if they can send Pitcock into an early break, maybe that puts pressure on UAE. We saw that. What did you think about that yesterday where your Iran is up the road? I mean, technically he's a threat, but I don't think anyone, if, if Tade Pogacar can't get a minute on Rigoberto Iran over the next two weeks, something else has happened. Were you surprised they were so aggressive in chasing that down? They did expend a lot of energy throughout the day, and Robbie McEwen made a comment in the Eurosport broadcast that I thought was very true. He said somebody he talked to somebody inside the race, and he said it might look like what UAE is doing is easy, but it's not. Like they're spending a it lot of energy so hard. to be out there. Yeah. yeah, I mean they're out there all front all day trying to chase that back, and. I think that this kind of goes back to what we've seen from Pagachar generally, which is he's incredibly aggressive and he wants to take every crumb. He doesn't want to give up a centimeter. And when he has the chance to be in the yellow jersey, he wants to hold on to it. And we know the energy cost of that over time for his team in particular is going to be incredibly high. And just thinking about Spencer, there's been so much talk about a new era or the new cycling which seemingly defies the rules of human physiology because it used to be accepted that over the course of three weeks, you would see some kind of degradation or decrease in performance of riders. But what we've seen from Pagachar is that he's putting out, you know, record setting numbers potentially in the final days of a three week race. And he might be able to continue to do that or, or not. I mean, what goes up must come down with two weeks of the race left the energy cost of what his team is putting out might be too high yeah i mean i, I will remind people 
you know, he, I think it's forgotten because he won two consecutive mountain stages in the yellow jersey, which is almost not very many people have ever done. Very hard to do. He was fading at the end of last year's race. Like he got smoked in the final time trial by Vindegaard. He wasn't dropping uh, Vindegaard and Carapaz on the on the summit finishes. Vindegaard's stronger this year than he was last year. So if he has that same degradation that he had last year, he won't win this tour. So you know, he, he, has, he has limits to his physical ability. He can't just be good all the time. He was amazing. He was like on fire in the first 10 days of the tour last year. But the thing is, he got a ton of time. He got like five minutes on a single stage, which let him kind of mask his natural slowing down as that race went on. If that happens this year, he won't win. You know, he'll get passed by people behind him because they're closer this year than they were last year. So there are limits to this. And um, I wonder if they're racing with like a little too much of a chip on their shoulder. Like yesterday seemed completely unnecessary and they rode that team into the ground. So that, that would be my major concern. Like what happens if I'm just looking at the stages to come and you look at Thursday, it's a short stage, 160K, Alp Duez, there's three hc climbs it what if they're dropped on the first hc climb pagacher's isolated with two climbs to go peacock roglic go up the road i mean you could imagine it getting pretty messy pretty fast so you know that's my main concern and, and i'm a bit befuddled by their tactics at the moment you know spencer my podcast is called choose the hard way but that doesn't mean waste energy or do things that are hard just to punish yourself and when i look at it means you know the buy-in in order to do your best work is you have to be willing to work hard and to do hard things. You have to be able to work hard before you can work smart. When I look at Team UAE and the way they're expending their energy right now, and in particular, being a man down, right? They're now a man down due to a COVID exit from the race. We know that some of the riders on the team, uh, you know, Mark Hershey, for example, doesn't seem to be performing at the very highest level so far in the race. And that leaves you with six riders, right? Six strong yeah. riders. And uh, we saw Pagachar go down in a wreck the other day. Thankfully, it was a relatively minor wreck. Nonetheless, anytime you touch the ground, your body's going to have to heal and recover from that. There's going to be an energy cost. You're probably going to start riding a bit more cautiously. So who knows what's going to happen in the next two weeks. So I, I think that's what people mean when they call into question some of the tactics that we're seeing from UAE. And again, I know we're going to get into some of the COVID protocols here in a bit, but one of the things that I observed following the stage yesterday was that as uh, Tade was going back down the mountain, he's like high-fiving fans. And just, it's like, um, now if I, I have like a betting podcast called outcomes, it's subscription only feel free to subscribe, but he, um, I'm, I've been like betting on Jonas strategically watching how many high fives Pogacar is giving. So I'm like, eventually this is going to catch up with them. We, we, let's just talk about COVID really quick. I have a theory that like COVID knows to respect big events, like college football playoffs, no COVID NCAA basketball, no COVID Super Bowl, no COVID. Um, we saw today the entire Peloton was tested on the rest day. No COVID. Like COVID knows to stay away from these big sporting events. That's the only explanation for what's going on here. Um, it seemed to be an issue during the week. We saw multiple riders pulled out. Like an important UAE domestique got pulled out with COVID. 
somewhat magically, no one on his team got COVID, even though they've been dining together and sharing the bus and, and sharing hotel rooms. So um, it's just we should maybe maybe all these teams should give us like a presentation on how not to contract COVID with close contacts, because whatever they're doing, it's quite amazing. I mean, what's your take on that? I couldn't I mean, I quite literally don't believe that they tested the entire Peloton and no one has COVID, even though there's been COVID spread all week long in the Peloton. Yeah, I'm confused by what's happening, honestly. In France, we've seen a plus 110% increase in recorded COVID positives in the past two weeks. And Spencer, as you pointed out, when we were testing about this, that doesn't include at-home tests where surely there are even more positives. So that's about on average, 129,000 new cases a day in the last two weeks. Uh, I took, you know, taking a look at the U.S., France has a population of 67 million, roughly. The United States is about 329 million people. The U.S. seven-day average is 110,000. So in a much smaller country, we're seeing a much higher incidence of COVID positives. And, you know, people have whatever feelings they have about COVID currently, but some of these subvariants, I don't know if you have friends who've been infected. In fact, I, I know that you have some pretty close contacts who've been infected recently, <laughs> yeah. right? But yeah. I mean, it varies. Very close contacts. I, I know some people have been really, really wiped out by it and some people who are asymptomatic. But reading about this, ironically, given that we saw uh, Pagachar high-fiving people on the way down the mountain, the UAE team and staff, they do have very stringent protocols Apparently, perhaps they're not following them <laughs> all the time, following um, stages, but it seems like they're running a pretty tight ship within the team. Nonetheless, they did have that positive. And organizers have indicated riders are supposed to be getting tested every day. Team staff are getting tested every other day. I'm not sure why you wouldn't test team staff every day if you're testing riders every day on its face. That just doesn't make sense to me. And then in different articles about different teams, I'm just seeing really different approaches. As a, for example, Pidcock did an interview with Cycling News. I'm just going to read this quote. He said, we're not testing every day. There's no point testing if you don't ha have symptoms, is there? It's a normal illness. Like if you're ill, you're ill and you can't race. It's not like if you have COVID, but no symptoms, you go home. We test when we need to test. If someone's ill, they're ill. So, so we found Fauci's replacement. Yeah. So um. <laughs> he's, he's a genius. You know, that's really weird coming from, cause I'm also confused cause I've heard writers are getting tested every day. That quote would indicate that's not the Correct. case. And then coming from a team that even before we ever knew what COVID was back in the Dave, Dave Brailsford days, you, you know, I have my issues with Dave. Um, I think he lies a lot. He obfuscates beautifully. Um, he, he wrote, he, he ran a type shit there, ship, not shit, ship there. Um, and even before COVID, I mean, he would like not let riders shake hands with journalists because he knows getting sick is not good for riding a bike. They had hand sanitizer everywhere on the team. Like they were really, really like big into social distancing before we even knew what social distancing was. So that's so bizarre for me to see that same outfit. Like, no, Tom, it's not like a normal illness because you're, you're, you're quite contagious specifically before you're ill. Like that's when you would want to catch it. Yeah. Maybe they've figured something out. Maybe if you wear a vest while you're racing, it stops you from getting, maybe it's like a protective <laughs> amulet. One trick that doctors hate, wear a vest. 
Yeah, I think that's a new BuzzFeed article, like the seven top things to do to avoid getting COVID. <laughs> Number one, wear a vest in a world tour bike race. Well, I guess if they are testing when people get symptoms, I mean, eventually you will stop getting spread because you've caught everyone that has COVID. I think the X factor there is Tade Pogacar's high fives of the crowd. You could bring in outside cases, you know, through a number of of ways, but I, I'm I'm wondering if if they're just I cannot believe that there was no positives from a Peloton wide testing. It's unclear to me what exactly is going on. The fact that they made a big deal about testing the whole Peloton today makes me think that they're not doing it every day. Along with that Pickock quote, I mean, do you have any insight on that? Like, what are what what is the testing protocols there? If you're sick, you get tested, maybe. I have no idea. I'm in as as it relates to Pagachar, I think he's, you know, as we talked about, I think he's having his Zuckerberg on the foil surfboard with the American flag moment. I noticed that Peacock the other day had one of those you know, human interest segments about Pagachar back in Slovenia showing the junior cycling club that he sponsors and he provides them with bikes, equipment, which is awesome. Like I think it's fantastic. He talked about how that was the only way that he got into the sport. Not everyone is a high-level professional rider with multiple team bikes like Spencer. Some kids have to find a way to just, you know. Let's keep that on the down low. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them coming after me. Just to me. elbow their way into the sport and get onto a bike. It's not a cheap or easy sport to get involved in. So I think that's awesome. Equally, I think we're seeing some hearts and minds work from – Pagachar, maybe with an eye towards having a bigger presence uh, globally and in English speaking markets. And, but generally, I just, I don't think that there's any consistency or homogeneity across the Peloton or amongst staff. And it's just really counterintuitive. Uh, the only thing that I can think is that potentially they want to delay as long as possible, revealing that they're positive tests or keep people in the race as long as possible it also that just doesn't make much sense because if you're carrying any viral load i'm assuming your immune system is working overtime you're not going to be performing at your highest level and if you're actively symptomatic there's just no way you're going to stay in this race that's just not possible yeah and that's kind of like that we don't want to lose sight of like that's the most important fact here like we could quibble all day about testing protocols blah 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 but like if you have a symptomatic case of COVID, you're not going to be able to make the time cut. So teams can can obfuscate positives, but it all is just going to come out in the product. Like if Tade Pogacar gets COVID and they lie about it, he's going to get dropped. He's not going to be any good. We saw this with Joao Almeida at the Giro. You know, remember he was kind of not on his best, um, was getting dropped on summit finishes that he should have been competitive on. And then it came out three days later that he had COVID. So it does affect your performance. I mean, at this level, anything will affect your performance. Like a bad night of sleep could see you get dropped. So, yeah. I mean, the testing is almost there just to prevent spread. So it doesn't make sense for them to... When, I don't know what happened today with that. There's no COVID. But maybe they're keeping it all internally and they're trying to sequester people that have tested positive. But if you get COVID, you're not going to do very well in the race. Maybe they just want to really savor their COVID... You know, going back to these NEOS comments from Pidcock and others, I don't know if you've noticed this, Spencer, but it does make me, again, wonder 
about what's going on inside of that team because suddenly we've got Pidcock and Thomas. They almost sound like the the judges on the Muppets. They're just they have a lot of comedic commentary about what's going on inside of the race and almost seemingly like a real hang loose type of attitude, which it's funny. I'm reading a lot of pretty hilarious quotes from both of those writers. So it's great. It is like a comedy routine every day. Yeah. Like when you see Tom's poll quote. Yeah. yeah and I'm, they probably have a, a very personal close relationship with the reporter who's getting this amazing material from these two, but it does seem less serious. And you know, like, uh, then we've seen coming out of the death star in the past. Don't you think? Uh, it's definitely less serious. I mean, I enjoy it more. I was just thinking about like UAE's tactics don't make any sense. They're really silly. They could bite them, but I'm glad they're doing them because it's awesome to watch the yellow jersey participate in punch sprints against Michael Matthews and Wout Van Art, even though that makes no sense and is super dangerous. Um, they should just be giving the jersey away. You should be sitting back doing nothing. But that's what Ineos slash Sky used to do. Remember, like they did everything made sense. Everything was the most logical way to win the Tour de France. They would get world champions and park them on the front and never let them get in breakaways or do anything fun. And it stunk. Like it was very effective at winning tours. They did an amazing job of it. What they won every tour except for one between 2012 and 2019. So that's gone clearly these guys are not as serious as they used to be and i think that i think it's better i i think that uae riding completely insanely make making no sense and enios now being the fun team is fantastic for us it does make me wonder if they've like thrown in the towel a little bit or that's just like well tade is so good nothing we do will affect that so let's just have a good time but at the same time don't let them fool you i mean i'm just looking at the gc standings thomas is 77 seconds back adam yates is just eight seconds further behind him and then you have pickock is the wild card in seventh so this race isn't over for them you know part of me wonders if it is a bit of a tactic of like as you described it we're the hang loose team like we got jokes for days blah 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 and then they've you know probably got something planned yeah for if it, this coming week if it were 2012 and Aos would be the team making the call me maybe uh, YouTube video, right? I mean, it would be <laughs> yeah. on YouTube. It wouldn't be on TikTok like the GCN um, on-air talent getting very aggressive with their TikTok presence, really boosting their social currently. But yeah, I mean, Thomas is, the, you know, he's what we would call the Wiley veteran at this point. It's like you can't gaze into his soul behind those um, those vintage Oakleys. And he almost has the vibe of, at this point in his career, he's like a Han Solo. He's a bounty hunter. He's been out there. He's been there. He's done that. He's been frozen in carbonite. He's been in Jabba the Hutt's lair. And he's still going, <laughs> right? I, I've never, I never really, he never really caught me. I didn't really like any of the Sky Riders. It is fascinating to me that Thomas, sitting third overall at the tour, you know, I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you remember this, for years he was not, a leader. He just worked for Chris Froome. He was a classics writer who did work for Chris Froome at the tour. I always was like the crazy man yelling out into the abyss, like Garrett Thomas could ride for GC. He's better than Chris Froome. Let Garrett Thomas ride. You know, he's always crashing. It never quite worked out. He wins in 2018 against Chris Froome. Pretty cool moment. Um, I wonder how, like, how does he feel now that he's one of the top GC riders in the sport and is like former boss, essentially, who 
I always felt like they had a frostier relationship than that's one of the reasons I didn't like the team that you could clearly tell these guys didn't like each other. And it's like, well, no, they're good. There's a mutual respect. They love each other. And it's like, they see each other at the tour de France and they do not speak nor see each other the rest of the year. I wonder like, yeah, does he, is he able to be like, whoa, wild that I'm still competitive and Chris Froome is in the group pedo every day. Like that must be a strange experience for him. And everyone he's competing against is a baby. Like you look at Adam Yates, I think is the oldest Adam Yates and Bardet are the oldest people close to him on the GC. And he's far older, older than both of them, like almost half a decade older. I mean, perhaps not shocking that he and, and Froome don't have the tightest relationship. They're not making art with macaroni shells and mailing it to each other in the off season. But, you know, I mean, Froome did have tight relationships with some of the writers who supported him during the tour, I think. But yeah, Thomas, definitely not one of them. And, you know, now it's his time. Maybe something happened during that collision with Warren Bargui in uh, 2015 that displaced Thomas's Oakley's and sent them flying. Of course, the spectator had to retrieve them and bring them back. Thank you, Spencer. For- <laughs> I rewatched that. Yeah. He really just got... <laughs> I, don't, I didn't remember Gil just ran straight into him it was crazy just straight up t-boned it was almost it was like uh a semi on a runaway truck ramp on <laughs> yeah, i-70 right like did you not know this hairpin was coming like what happened there it's a real yellow moment but yeah thomas completely laid out lost his glasses put him back on but i wonder if you know something changed in that moment for him yeah we lost the loyal lieutenant in that moment and now we've got new garrett Mean Garrett. Yeah. Focused Garrett. Yeah. Focused um, Garrett. I think his name is like Garrett is how they would probably say it. I mean, do you think as our in-house Ineos correspondent, do you think they have a shot at this tour? Like, or like, how do you think they have three riders in the top 10? How should they play the rest of this race? I think that they're going to throw everything at the wall and pray that Pagachar has a bad moment, a crash forgets to eat a gel, drops his ketone bottle, his bottle of magic ketones, something. I mean, that's the chance that they have. And, you know, you can't count on that. We talked about that on the last episode. You can't count on just there being some kind of uh, intervention of fate or luck. And in general, Pagachar is... He's uh, he's a highly attentive writer and the ground doesn't call him the way it does... Primoz Roglic or some other riders. So if, if he continues to stay upright, yeah, Ineos, they seem confounded. They don't really seem to know how to approach solving this problem. And I think that's part of maybe why they've loosened up a bit. And I think when a team has a bit of a lighter vibe like that, that's sometimes when they'll they'll try something and go to a higher level than might be possible otherwise. What's your take on it, Spencer? I'm kind of coming around to at first I was confused. I just didn't understand why why did they have so many guys riding hard in the time trial or even yesterday where Jonathan Castroviejo is in the break. I mean, that's not that's not a tactic you see often from serious GC teams letting a rider contest a stage win from the breakaway. You know, but if you think if you really step back and think about it, well, he took away a time bonus slot for Pogachar. Yeah, that's actually super savvy because he was Pogacar's eating them alive with these time bonuses. You have to stop him from getting time bonuses. What's one way to do that? Get a rider in front of him to to chew him up. I was confused why Pitcock was riding hard in the time trial. I guess now we see that he is some sort of 
GC Joker for them to play. Um, it's been a little disappointing not to see him competing for stage wins, but they, they must have some plan. Like this must not be, oh, just guys like go ride around out there and like see how you feel. And if you finish top 10, that's cool. You know, I think they're keeping them in the GC picture for a reason and not letting not, I mean, they're not having anyone work for him for stage wins like Thomas or Yates or Martinez weren't leading him out on those uphill sprints that would have been good for him. You know, I, I read that as just like, you know, dysfunctional team. But then now that we sit here on the rest day, I, I do wonder if there's some plan here that they see that, well, the only way to beat Tade is to gang up on Tade with legitimate GC contenders. Like everyone's always like Yumbo had six guys sitting behind uh, Vindegaard yesterday and everyone's like, whoa, they got the advantage. It's like, well, what are they going to, okay, they have a bunch of teammates. What are they going to do with them? Like they could attack. Tade doesn't care about anyone other than Jonas. He's just going to mark Jonas. I mean, probably Primo's too. Primo's serves the same role for, for Yumbo. But, you know, if Adam Yates gets into an early break on the Alp Duet stage or tomorrow, you know, what's Tade going to do? You know, that puts him under serious pressure. You can't spot these guys' time. Same thing with Pitcock. We don't really know what he's capable of. You wouldn't want to give him eight minutes, that's for sure you wouldn't even want to give him four minutes. Like you have no idea if you can get that back or not. So, you know, I, I do, I, I've come around to their tactics a bit and think that this, like I call it like the glob strategy where they just like have a glob of riders sitting up there, you know, could come in handy. I think that's what's been missing in the, in the kind of the team, the team up against a single rider strategy. Like the teammates have to be legit, somewhat legitimate GC threats for any type of pinch strategy to work. You can only run what you brung, and aspects of what Ineos are doing seem a bit nonsensical, and they just they haven't had the strength to go head-to-head with Pogacar or some of these other riders to contest stage wins for sure. It's like they had absolutely no chance, but it might emerge over time that this will seem like it's actually a brilliant strategy, which is they're riding more in the manner that we've seen teams ride in the past and sky is not the sky of you know two years ago or five years ago uh, but i do think that what we're going to see happen over time is a rider like pagachar plus a team with skies old skies level of talent and discipline that is what eventually might disrupt what pagachar is doing today we're not going to see it happen in this race but the only chance that Ineos has is to ride in a sensible man- manner to conserve as much energy as possible. And when they see that opportunity to go on the attack, that's the only way that they stand a chance of actually winning the race or retaining their high placings on GC. So maybe in, in hindsight, it will look really smart. Yeah, and the da- they, they've learned their lesson. The danger of doing the old sky tactic, which is exactly what Yumbo did in 2020, like if you remember, they were just on the front from like day one. They rode on the front of that tour for every day until the final day when they lost. You have to have the strongest rider in the race if you do that. If you don't, Tade, whose team was garbage, just sat on their wheel. Like you're essentially then working for the other rider because if you ride the climbs at a really, really hard tempo that no one can attack off of, you're helping the stronger rider who's going to take time in the time trials and can drop you at the drop of a hat because he's stronger than your leader. Like you're essentially putting your leader in trouble. We saw that with stage 17 of the 2020 tour where Bahrain like put, set a high pace for Mika Landa 
and they just dropped Landa because the other riders were stronger than Landa. Like you can only do that strategy if you have Chris Froome. Chris Froome was the key to that strategy because he was stronger than everybody else. If you don't have the strongest rider, don't do it. Like it's a bad idea. We saw that with Yumbo. We saw that with Ineos last year. So this new strategy, I mean, they definitely have learned. They have a new director, Steve Cummings, who was never partook in that strategy. He was more of like a wily race tactician. And I think that shows the risk here though, is you kind of do this conservative racing, bide your time. You don't, you get three riders in the top 10. You don't get anyone on the podium. You don't get a stage win. And perhaps that's what they were hedging against yesterday with Castro Viejo going for the stage win. You know, like they need to get something out of this tour. And if you can get a stage win, you, you get a little bit of pressure off your back versus i mean that would be really disappointing for them to leave without a podium or a stage win so you know maybe that's why they we see we are seeing what we're seeing spencer when you look at the rest of the top 10 gc right now these more minor placings become incredibly important to all of the other teams when they know that they're fighting for scraps more or less when it comes to gc should they even be paying attention to gc should they like for example should ef care that Nielsen Palace is sitting at ninth overall, is first American in the race. Is that important? Do you think they care about that? Should they go all in on stage wins and and not pay attention to that? Uh, that's a good question. I'm I'm of two minds about this. Yeah, yes. I mean, the answer is yeah. They probably should just go for stage wins. Um, like if it was like the Vaughns and Martin Pro Cycling team, and we were running the team, we would probably do that because that's more fun and it matters. But I guess the depressing reality is Nielsen Palace getting top 10 at the Tour de France is like, at least from like a marketing perspective in the US is bigger than stage wins. I mean, that's a big deal for an American to get 10th in the Tour. It's probably important for him. You know, they're trying to see, is this guy a a real GC contender? Um, Can he ride a three-week race, you know, well? without losing a ton of time so some of this is like a trial balloon for for them to to feel out nielsen as a rider it's important for nielsen's development you know if you want to win a grand tour you gotta this is my big knock on remco having to pull everyone's like well, he's gonna win the vuelta it's like you need to ride a grand tour and not win to then ride a grand tour and win no one no one ever comes in except the very first humans that ever raced grand tours and won the first one they ever raced like you have to race it Tade Pogacar got fourth at the Vuelta before he won the Tour de France. Maybe, he maybe got third, actually. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But he rode the Vuelta and didn't win it. So it is important for Nielsen to do this. I think they, they, can, they can balance it all right. You know, they don't have to defend his 10th place position. You know, they might, though. And that's where this gets really tricky. Like, you know, if Tom Pickock goes up in a break... UAE could sit back and say, well, EF, do you want to defend 10th, like 10th place overall for Nielsen? Go ahead, do the work. And that's where it gets a little, a little tricky. I don't know if I would totally support doing that if I was them. I mean, but the reality for them, they're in a tough spot. They need stage wins. They need as many points as they can get. I don't think 10th place overall is going to net them the points they need to stay in the world tour. So they need to balance a lot of objectives there. I mean, what do you think? Would you, I mean, obviously it'd be more fun to see them go for stage wins, but does, does like Nielsen palace getting ninth place overall excite you one bit? I agree with you. I think that he has very high potential as a grand tour writer, whether that's, 
probably not as a tour contender. I don't see him winning the Tour de France. Who knows, though? Like, maybe he's a Vuelta winner. Maybe maybe he does well in the, the Dauphiné, other shorter stage races. But I do agree. I think it's important for his development. And, yes, they also have to go for stage wins. They have had a very high marketing ROI so far in this race with Magnus Court. You know, Magnus Court could have been a much bigger factor later in the race or even circa now had he not put all of the effort into grabbing the polka dot jersey. But that was worth yeah, it. Yeah, I think right? he could have potentially even won the stage yesterday. Yeah. Had he yeah. Yeah. Fear is not a factor, but Magnus Court could have been yesterday, you know, had he not put so <laughs> yeah. much effort into those first few relatively flat days. Or no, they they weren't relatively flat. They were almost completely flat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we know that he could really could have been punching in the mountains. Um, but you know, EF is going to try to be opportunistic. Do they have a chance of winning a stage? Remains to be seen. But there are a lot of other surprises, I think, here in in the GC ratings as we, you know, hit this. And one thing to keep day, in mind right? here is like there's another layer to this where it's it's boring to us, but just think of like Enric Moss. Like he's an eighth overall. If he finishes sixth overall, like that's irrelevant to us. We don't care about it. That's massively relevant to his bank account. Like to be able to ride sixth overall in a grand tour, you get paid a lot of money, like seven figures money. Um, so Nielsen is is like very motivated to get top 10 overall, even if we're not motivated for him. And then even if like you aren't a viable GC contender yourself, like if you can, if you're Nielsen and you can get ninth, that proves that you can be a highly paid domestique for Teddy Pogacar someday, you know, and, and they'll pay you 2 million, 3 million euros a year just to be a mountain domestique, which is why we see teams like Quickstep and Alpeson don't have mountain riders because they're too expensive for them. You know, they're budget teams. So there's like a lot, you can make a lot of money in a good career just working for someone like Teddy Pogacar. And that's partly what Nielsen Palace is doing here, like proving his worth as a potential mountain domestique in the future. Let's take a look at it a slightly different way than Spencer. That completely makes sense. And you're right. This could yield him a bigger, better contract. And we know that EF is not going to be able, they're not going to be the team that can write that paycheck in the future, especially well, with Karapaz yeah, coming I, on board. So does it make any I sense guess. for EF to actually do this? I guess what wouldn't Carapaz need a that's what I don't I don't understand anything about the Carapaz signing because they must be paying him a ton of money, a ton. And they need someone to work for him in the mountains. They don't really have anyone at the moment. I mean, maybe that maybe they do have new funding. I don't quite understand their financial situation, but if they sign Carapaz for what I imagine has to be three to four million euros a year, you gotta have someone to work for him in the mountains. You can't just bring him in and be like, good luck, buddy. Maybe, maybe they are. I don't know. I, I don't quite understand what's going on there. But Nielsen could be a good person to do that. But yeah, you're right. Do they just risk training someone to be a highly paid GC rider for another team because they can't afford to pay that person? Yeah, and that would be very benevolent of them, but not really in line with what I, I think a rational uh, team would do. While we're on the topic of money, because Spencer, you seem to be omniscient on this topic and... I think most listeners are not as dialed in on this, but when you look at Wout specifically, Wout, of course, has not won the Tour de France. Who is paid higher, Wout Van Art or Tade Pagachar? Oh, man, you caught me on the back foot here. I used to know Tade's salary. I forgot it. 
I deleted that from my brain file. Um, we can, we can circle back to it can, if you need to, but I think I, that, ju- I just, to buy me time, tell me what you think about the EF bikes. Okay. I, EF I have bikes. been of many minds about this. All right, okay. So when I take a look at the EF bikes, the thing that it evokes for me is early nineties clients. So it kind of has the tricolor client fade, which I absolutely love. And at the point at yeah. which eventually I'll get some kind of custom paint job on a bike. And when I do, it's likely to be one of those Klein neon tricolor paint jobs. So I love that when it gets up close on the bike. So the wide shot I really like. And then when you get into the detail and the just smattering of various logos all over the bike, I'm not feeling that. I I don't really like it. I don't like how they're arranged and distributed on the frame set. I find it to be visually not very appealing, but I like the broad strokes of the paint job. How do you feel about it? No, you sum it up really, really well. I, I, it does give me Klein vibes, which uh, there's like, in my mind, no more beautiful bikes than those 90s Kleins, especially like the fluorescent colors they were going after. Um, yeah, I don't like the logos. It's a little, it's a little noisy when you get the close up. And um, like my wife's cousin, who's like, just watches the tour, but doesn't follow cycling that closely all year. It was just like, I think he's, I, I, maybe we, I overthink this and I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I like this marketing and he's just like, why doesn't Primo's Roglic just like have a cool bike that we can all talk about? It's like, oh yeah, that, that does make a lot of sense. Like <laughs> probably should just be like more like, why is Tade Pogacar, the Colonago actually looks pretty good. I, I didn't like that brand for a lot of years. They've got new investment via the UAE family, Royal family. Um, that bike looks pretty good. I actually think it's, it's a quality bike now. It, it's a little bland. He's just riding out there, riding a black Colonago. Like, I don't, like he, I don't know. It should, it, it would be more fun if Tadek Pogacar had like a one-off interesting bike, you know, perhaps yellow. I don't know, since he's the race leader, maybe it's weird to me. They're not doing more with that. So I have Pogacar gets paid 6 million euros a year. He just signed a new contract through like 2028. Um, Ineos this off season offered him, this was, I don't, I've not confirmed this. I heard 18 million euros a year to move over to Ineos, which sounds crazy, but that's worth it for them because they're still spending a ton of money currently and not winning the tour. Like, so they just need to pay whatever it takes to win the tour essentially. Sorry, Um, Spencer, that 18 million euros a year, would that include buying out, uh, Pagachar's current contract or is that on top of buying out his contract? Uh, I don't uh, They There definitely would have been needed to be some buyout. Perhaps that included that. It's hard to imagine anyone turning down. Yeah, that seems totally irresistible. And if he didn't take 18 million euros to transfer, I wonder what's going on. Well, and part of it is like you can offer that to him. But if he's in the contract, then UAE doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want him to be bought out. Yeah, His good, hands are tied. good point. Yeah. I wonder if it was more performative on, on Ineos's part than anything. Yeah. And then Wout Van Aert, you know, I'm looking at like alleged figures. It says 2.2 million euros. No way. I, I'd that's, imagine that's it's more than that. I don't, I bet he doesn't make more than 4 million euros a year though, at least from salary. So, I mean, Tade does make more. I mean, usually if you're winning the tour a bunch, I mean, Chris Froome still makes 5 million euros a year. <laughs> and he hasn't been good in a long time. So 
winning the tour multiple times will will make you the highest paid rider in the sport. Yeah, and with Froome, Froome now has an owner. He has some ownership or significant equity stakes in some of the equipment sponsors of his team. Uh, That might be a factor in him continuing to have a high salary, although the economics of that don't make sense. But... (laughs) Yeah, I I remember when I remember when this was the backstory on this is he was getting paid like four to five million euros a year um, after the and then the injury happened. They go to Ineos and say, like, we want five million euros a year for five years. And Ineos is like, no way. Like, there's no way we're doing that. Um, And if you remember at the same time, Sylvan Adams and Israel Startup Nation were not a world tour team. They thought they needed a splashy signing. They thought they were buying like a Tour de France winner, though. Like this is not the situation they thought they were getting into. Um, Adams is an interesting figure. He's like deeply Zionistic, just wants to promote Israel. And, you know, I guess I don't I know. I, I don't agree with it. I think that winning is good. Like they should have just signed Tade Pogacar. Why didn't they just pay him? He was probably making like six hundred thousand dollars a year at the time they should have just hired him instead um you know i think they would say well we're still getting a lot of like publicity out of chris Froome, so it was worth it but i mean imagine if wout van arts on that team instead of chris Froome, you know they're getting a lot more publicity that way yeah you know on the topic of wout and i went deep on pitcock the past couple of days and another comment that pitcock made which i think is true pitcock is uh he's brash right like he definitely has an ego which i think benefits him and he generally backs it up with his results and the way he rides but he made the comment that you know i'm on the level of wow van art and matthew vanderpool and he fully expects that once he understands riding the tour de france that he's going to show up at the same level with the same results that they do in future editions of the tour and i agree with them i think that in the next tour we very likely could see Pitcock show up and like pull a wout. Um, I'm throwing a flag. Here. All right. I mean, what, what what wout is doing is is unprecedented. We've never seen this before. Like even I think I think Pitcock could do something on par with what Vanderpool did last year. Um, if you remember, like this the early stage win yellow jersey for like seven days, definitely within the realm of Pitcock. Wout is is above and beyond that i mean he's won he's won every type of stage you can win like he's won every type of stage the tour can offer and he's just like messing around while in the yellow jersey and doing teamwork for his team i i would believe that when i see it with pitcock i mean that's like historic maybe some of the best we've ever seen type of feats maybe you're right i nonetheless i admire pitcock's brashness and i think that's the level of brashness it takes to achieve at that level. I mean, Wout at the same time, Wout is not making those types of statements and is just a very, uh, on, or on the, we don't, yeah, we're not hearing them. Not right? in the language that we speak. Yeah. yeah. Not in English. Right. Um, but so where do you think Pidcock would be most deficient, uh, in backing up those claims? Where do you think he'd be the most lacking or is it all of the yeah, above? I think he just doesn't have the, like the raw power. If you think of back to stage, was that stage four, the solo win? That was absurd. Um, I don't think Pitcock can do that. He's not as good of a time trialist as Van Art. And the bunch sprinting. Um, if you remember the first two road stages where Wout is getting second and 
legitimate bunch sprints. Yeah. I don't think Pitcock can do that. One thing though that I've been surprised by Pitcock, you know, I I did I was disappointed. I thought like when Tade blows everyone away on that uphill finish, I thought Pitcock could maybe win that if he would have pulled me before the stage. But this GC campaign he's putting together, we haven't really hit high high mountains yet. This is better than I thought he would do. And depending on how he does in the high Alps, he potentially could be like that's an area where he could be better than Wout and Matthew Vanderpool. Yeah, because if we're looking at the results yesterday, I'm trying to pull them up. But if I recall correctly, he wasn't that far behind Thomas. No, right? he was right there. Yeah, just like um, a handful of seconds. And Thomas was a handful of seconds back um, from Pogacar. Yeah, and that's it's like a funny rule of the sport where Thomas was counted as, oh, I thought it was four. They maybe shortened it to three seconds and, but they maybe were only a second behind because they take it from like the, they count it from the front of Tade's wheel, not the rear of Jonas's wheel, who was the back of that group. So when you see Pitcock is four seconds behind Thomas, maybe he was just maybe he just just fell off of Roglic's wheel for a moment and was only like a second behind Roglic but then was counted as four seconds behind Thomas so that can get exaggerated uh maybe just poor positioning there I don't know I'm curious to see how he does in the high mountains I don't know why this is jumping into my brain right now but I've been watching Caleb Ewan's Instagram quite a bit I know I uh shared it across to you I think that he has the best Instagram account of any writer in the tour right now if someone else finds something better please send us a tweet spencer is at btp cycling i'm at vance or at hardway pod but the thing that uh caleb's been doing that i'm finding to be really interesting is almost every day he's posting a video that's about five minutes long and it's just iphone it looks like it's shot on an iphone uh hashtag shot on an iphone clips that have been sewn together not highly professional, but just kind of behind the scenes um, footage. But it's really showing you an inside look at the race, the way a rider experiences it in a pretty unique way that I'm not seeing on anyone's channels and in particular, not on anyone's like highly curated, professionally shot content. One of the things he shared yesterday, he was thinking about which bike to ride in the stage, talking to the mechanics. And he said that... Apparently his aero bike, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this, Spencer? Is this a, a weight of the aero bike? The weight of the aero bike. It looks heavy. I, I'm very curious to see what it weighs. And he is not a large rider, so proportionally it's taking up a larger... Uh, um, Probably one of the smallest ones you could buy, actually. Yeah. Eight kilos. Oh, my God. That's, so that's 17.6 pounds. That's like what... Do you remember when, when Lance Armstrong... This was like 20 years ago. They would like, they're climbing. They remember they would have a, a non climbing bike that would weigh like 19 pounds. And then they would like switch out for a climbing bike that was like 15 pounds. Right. That's approaching like bike weights from 20 years ago that they would race on non mountain days. That is crazy. Yeah. I thought it was crazy. And then his climbing bike option was over seven kilos. You know, the, again, the UCI minimum is 6.8, which is. Yeah, so his his climbing bike was still half a pound more than the UCI minimum. I know we keep talking about this, but 
it's, uh, you know, I loved your lever theory the last time we were banging on about this topic that because you have the disc brakes at the hub rather than higher up that you you need to put more material and reinforce the frame. But I think it's just the overall weight of the disc brake systems. It's the calipers, it's the rotors, it's the hydraulic fluid, it's the, the cable housing. I think that that's what's adding the weight because the weight of these frames, you know, if you look at that specialized, uh, I think it's, is it the Athos? Is that the name of that bike? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a like a $19,000. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, it's very basic. Yeah. yeah it's the most expensive kid, bike you can You can send buy. your kid to college for a year or you can buy this specialized bike, but it, it weighs, I think 11 pounds. So you'd have to drop a few chains into the C tube, which was an old mechanics trick when they needed to get their bikes up to the UCI minimum, which was pretty common back in the day. Right. I remember even as recently as like 2015, 2016, they'd be like Peter Sagan's Cannondale team. They'd have these little like weighted plugs. They would just drop them into the seat post because their bikes were too light. Yeah. And then five years later, those are heavy bikes. I mean, that's really, they're also on Ridley's, right? Which yeah. is not the most, that's kind of a funny, it's like a government owned brand. Uh, I don't even think they make bikes anymore, like, but they can't shut it down because it's like a, like a function of the Belgian government is that they have to have Ridley always has to be in a, a bike brand no matter what. So autumn wheat I think and they like bikes. Yeah. I think they make them through like Merck's actually makes the frames for them, but it's not a highly innovative brand because of that. But man, that is heavy named after um, named after Ridley Scott. Yeah. It, it's a little known fact that he's like massive over there. So they, they love, did he do like heat? Am I? No, no, that's Michael Mann. Come, oh my God. On, so embarrassing. <laughs> I was always a man guy more than Ridley Scott. Yeah. Big Michael Mann but fan. Love heat. I wanted to ask you about, well, heat actually let's, let's put a pin in heat and let's come to back to that, back to that. But P Thibaut Pino, he, he did make this point somewhat moot because he was awesome yesterday. Um, chasing down Bob Youngles clearly fit, clearly could win a stage of this tour. His, his antics, his luck, his situation uh, the day before, I found a bit strange. So he like crashes and then maybe gets a flat tire. You know, it's like it's the Pino, the Pino hat trick. You know, it's like bad things do not happen in, in ones to this man. They happen in threes. He goes through a feed zone. He appears not to be. I, I'm still confused how the heck this happened. He's like riding between a Trek rider and a Swanior. So, of course, he gets a feed bag to the face. And then... I don't know about you. My reaction would be more on par with like a Cavendish reaction where I'd probably just stop and start screaming and be really angry. Pino just gets off his bike almost seamlessly, goes over to Matt Bowden, the press office for EF, who I think he does not know or have a relationship with, hugs him and starts crying in his arms. Well, Matt's, Matt's a great guy. I think, you know. Yeah, Matt is a great guy. <laughs> he judged yeah. in the split seconds. He judged. This is a man. Matt's Matt's quote was pretty funny. He's like, well, my first thought was, I need to get out of the way of this man before he runs into me. You know, <laughs> I realized that he's coming to hug and cry. I, I thought that was the strangest in sports reaction I've, I've ever seen to the point that I didn't include it in my newsletter because I was like, this is too personal. This is not for us. This is a private moment that we're not supposed to be privy to. I just thought that was... I, I think like 99% of athletes probably would 
have gotten off the bike and probably incorrectly screamed at this one you know like it's not his fault he was just holding out a bag for his rider but it was like not anger it was like sadness and like with a heavy heart that pino took getting hit to the face yeah pino is as you know and most listeners may know highly polarizing figure in the world of professional cycling and you know has had some very serious achievements has also had some really serious challenges in his career most recently the past couple of years struggling with a back injury and trying to find that we'll we'll come back to that yeah we're not we're not maybe it's a back injury we're not really sure but like that's that's what's been put forward in the press as we saw in this incident highly emotional uh writer some really emotional moments both in victory and in defeat and that's part of what makes him an interesting character he is a character right and i mean whether it's that or uh bob Youngles yesterday i do think that going back to what could world tour cycling do to make the sport more engaging and interesting to people watching and to draw more people in who might not just might not be able to connect at the level of uh, following all the intricacies of what's actually going on inside of the race. Some really interesting human interest stories, and Pino is certainly one of them. So I I could see this incident in a, a lot of different lights, but he is a complex individual, and he's not stoic or angry, um, or at least not angry in the way, as you noted, that Cavendish or some other writers are. But there's something special about him. I I often don't like him because I read it as like performative. Obviously, like the goat, like he loves his goats. He lives on a cool farm. Like he's kind of, you, you almost can't argue that he's like somewhat compelling. The fact that he's, his lifestyle is interesting. And sometimes I always thought like the crying was performative. Like, okay, man, we get it. You're dropped again. And you're crying. Like, okay, all right, whatever. Um, the Bowden incident makes me think is maybe it's not performative. I don't know. It was so, it was so split second. I've been hit in the face and I need a shoulder to cry on that. I'm like, maybe he, he can't be making this up this fast. So it kind of won me. I was concerned until the next day when I was like, oh my God, this man is, is flying on the bike. Like he just needed to get a cry in before he could really open up the legs. But to go back to the, to the back, this is something I'm really, I really do not like about his team, FDJ and AG2R, these old school French teams. So Pino had a back injury injury because like his team manager made him stay in the tour with a back injury it screwed up his back for years and now we're seeing it with ben o'connor on ag2r where he's a torn muscle in his in his like hip in his leg and they're making him stay in the race because it's like it's like masculine like we are like sportsmen we do not drop out it's like it's this like old school french machismo well, yeah which and is it's like which r- is bizarre right? ruining Spencer? these riders it's it's bizarre because there is this dichotomy you're right and i hear this over and over from world tour riders who've been on french teams french teams are among in terms of their administration how they're run how they handle riders diets and trainings they're among the strictest and most stoic they're like the military right, hyper masculine yeah. but then you know, you noted that there almost at times seems to be this performative aspect of what Pino's doing. And there's a long tradition of this among 
French pro cyclist Thomas Vokler, chief among them. I mean, oh my god, they, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's this, aiming it up. Yeah. yeah, there's this phrase "pulling faces in cycling," which is the idea that you make a face to make it look like you're suffering more than you actually are, so that the director of another team watching it on TV will tell you know if you're competing against that rider, will tell you, oh, like he's he's really destroyed or whatever, and maybe you're saving something. You got a little extra in the tank, but Thomas Vokler was the king of TV time. Uh, opportunistically easing his way into these situations where he's just out front for hours making these horrible faces. You know, Michael Jordan was famous for always, uh, he'd have his tongue sticking out when he was doing really badass stuff. Thomas Vokler, I'm not going to say that he was the Michael Jordan of world tour cycling because he didn't have that ability level, but he was, he was uh, the world champion of making faces while riding a bike out front for a long time. So there's a long tradition of this, emotional expressions, making faces. And yeah. I think a lot of the sour grapes with French cycling is they, you know, they run these teams really, really strict, generally, like militaristically. Um, like, yeah, you're hurt. Who cares? Stay in the race. This is about, this is la tour. We do not, we do not quit. Um, and that worked for a long time. Like before innovation, you know, you could, you may, they were maybe doing things the wrong way, but they were just having people train really hard and they would wake, they would have you take a nap and not tell you how long the nap was and then wake you up and make you go train. Like almost like psychological terrorism, which probably wasn't helping, but the training was helping as things have progressed and, and people are smarter about training now, they know, you know, they know how to train and get fast. And these French teams are, are still stuck in their old ways. And like, it's catching up to them. It's why they don't perform as well, in my opinion. Um, they would probably say it's because everyone's doping except for them. I don't agree with that. But it's like these old, they're meatheads. Like if we, we don't recognize it because it seems so charming. Like Mark Matteo seems charming to us because he's French. He's a meathead. Like, like, well, what went wrong today? Well, Pinot didn't ride hard enough. It's like, well, that's not like a constructive feedback. That's just, you're just saying something. <laughs> There's nothing Thibaut Pinot can do with that information to make himself a better writer. So it's like, as opposed to like actually breaking down things as like, it's an actual sport. They're just still stuck in this, like really macho way, which it's like hurting people. Like I'm worried about Ben O'Connor. I think he's a massive talent. You're like, if you just keep making him ride on a torn leg muscle, like, you know, how long is this going to take him to recover from? We saw the Pino ruined like years of his career. It's also bad marketing. I mean, going back to the stage yesterday, you had Youngles, you had Pino, riders with two incredibly compelling stories of personal struggle and overcoming medical issues. You know, I'm thinking about a more savvy marketing organization like EF. They probably would have collaborated with Eurosport or Peacock and they would have had that human interest two to three minute vignette ready to go. They would have had more facts for the commentators. Just there's there's more marketing ROI to get out of these really compelling stories and it can make for more interesting and engaged viewing versus just saying, well, you know, uh, young goals had this arterial issue. It's fixed. It's great that he's back. It was just, it was mentioned a number. And they of said it like in the last like hundred meters, like hey, yeah. he was on the operating table last year. I'm like, wait, I yeah. know more about this story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. his career, you know, almost ended because of that, because he had, um, he had this issue where, scarring had formed uh on his arteries due to the cycling position and it's it's pretty rare but 20 years of training caused this buildup of scarring and it, it inhibited the blood flow into his legs so after two or three minutes his legs would get completely blocked and this was after 
you know, an incredibly high achievement for years and years and years. And then suddenly he had a new contract and he just couldn't deliver, had to have this major surgery. And now he's back like an incredible story. I think that's, um, it went undiagnosed for a long time. It seems like it's hard to diagnose. Like maybe it's more common than we're led to believe, but also for the normal person, like it's a highly risky surgery to get it fixed. Obviously worked out for Bob Youngles. Like if you're listening to this and you're an amateur cyclist, like an enthusiast and you're like, man, maybe I do have blocked arteries. I should go get that checked out. I would just recommend living with the, with the lower power output. Maybe don't risk your life getting a dangerous surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe take up something else. Badminton perhaps. Well, Spencer, I'm going to have to slide here in a second, jump onto another podcast, but awesome catching up with you. I'm really looking forward to these next few stages. I know we're going to be back on Wednesday. If people want to be in touch, I'm at Vance at Hardway Pod on Twitter. You're at BTP Cycling. What are you looking forward and to in the next two days? I'm looking forward to the the route's amazing. We have like the best mountain stages in the race coming up between tomorrow, Tuesday, and Thursday, which is the Aptuaz Day on Bastille Day. I'm a little worried about the heat. It's like hot, like real, like Texas hot, like 104 degrees in the areas of France they're going to. I just hope we see the actual races run in their entirety. What about you? What are you looking forward to, Andrew? Yeah, it's same. I'm wondering if we're going to see Pidcock the Punisher come out swinging. Uh, this might not be his day or his set of days, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I think we're going to see Pidcock take a stage win in the next two weeks. I don't think he wants to walk away from this tour without a victory. And yeah, it's going to be a really big couple of days for the GC. So definitely some action coming and we'll see if there's more consolidation in the uh in aos effort yeah i would have laughed at you about that prediction a week ago but something's brewing it in at in aos as the europeans say they're i think they're going to be a little louder this week than they have been so far well thanks andrew for giving us your time we'll let you get over to your other podcast and thanks everyone for listening we'll be back wednesday after a super exciting uh summer finish see you then all right bye all right